And welcome to chapter 75 of Crackcast, Upper Respiratory Tract Infections, URTIs. Erty. Erty. I'm Tristan with you this evening, and... It's Adam, too. <laughs> Both back in Victoria. I'm, of course, having a wonderful coffee, and Tristan, in his fine form, is drinking... Even more wonderful scotch. Hmm. Glenlivet 15 kind of episode. Let's fire through this. Tristan, start us off with that side post. All right, so the first question we're going to answer is we're going to list potential causes of pharyngitis, five viral and five bacterial etiologies. Next up, we're going to hit you up. When and who are you giving those steroids to? Number three, we're going to list causes of that devilish epiglottitis. Number four, we're going to talk about those deep neck spaces that I could never sort out and what infections lie in them. And then of course, number five, we're going to talk about the typical bacterial causes of deep space neck infections and what the names of the different syndromes are. Then six, we're going to talk about potential complications with these infections and the kind of rut row moments that lie within. Number seven, when do the sinuses typically develop? I think that's going to be a short one. It's a pretty quick question. Number eight, the pathophysiology of sinusitis, and then we'll talk about the microbiology of that. And number nine, last but not least, we're going to describe the management of acute rhinosinusitis and list six predisposing factors. Turns out I looked like a pretty stupid idiot the other day when I called it rhinosinusitis in a three-year-old who technically didn't Doesn't really have, have a lot of sinuses. sinuses. Oops. rhino Rhinoitis. All right, wisecrack. We're going to start off with five support, separative? Separative. Five separative (laughs) and five non-separative complications of group A beta hemolytic streptococcus infections. Number two for the wisecracks, we're going to list four findings on lateral neck x-ray of epiglottitis. That's an important one. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Number three, we're going to go over an approach to airway management with deep space neck infections. And finally, number four, we're going to discuss the lateral neck x-ray findings that are suspicious for retropharyngeal abscess. Rosen's in perspective. Quick punchline here, isn't it, Tristan? Yeah, so this would be stuff like Centaur criteria and diagnostic tests for mono, but really we covered it all in episode 23 called Sore Throat. So go back and listen to it if you want the touch-up. So let's get into it. Question number one, let's go over the list of potential causes for pharyngitis. Here we're talking about at least five viral and five bacterial, but in true crack-ass form, we're going to give you a bunch more than that. So let's talk about the emergent diagnosis of sore throat and then we'll throw in some extra potpourri. Smells great. So disease is not to miss. Things like primary HIV infection, really big scary things like epiglottitis, bacterial tracheitis, Ludwig's angina, gonorrhea, foreign bodies, angioedema, peritonsillar abscesses, and retropharyngeal abscesses. Now Adam, can you put that into a bit more of a structure? Yeah, I think about big infections, masses, and obstruction. So big infections, classically epiglottitis, bacteria tracheitis, the non-vaccinated diphtherias. Then you have the peritonsillar abscess and retropharyngeal abscess that can cause occlusion of the airway as well. Then you have foreign bodies, deep space infections like Ludwig angina, and then the crazy stuff like cancer and really bad mono, Epstein-Barr virus that gives you trouble. Now, in terms of the most common viral bacterial, so not necessarily, you know, diseases not to miss, but the most common stuff that we're going to see in our practice in the eMERGE. So viral, you see things like rhinovirus, adenovirus, HSV 1 and 2, influenza, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, varicellar zoster, and hepatitis virus. Common viruses that we see all the time causing a muck everywhere else. And then the bacterial causes, by and far the most common we're looking for and that we're worried about is group A beta hemolytic strep or GAS. Non-group A streps can do it too. Then your big ones otherwise are Neisseria gonorrhea, Neisseria meningitidis, mycoplasm with an atypical 
fecal infection, chlamydia, diphtheria, and age flu. Awesome. Not much to it there, just kind of rot memorization for the important ones. And don't forget about the non-infectious causes. So systemic diseases like Kawasaki, Stephen Johnson, thyroiditis, trauma, so retained foreign bodies, laryngeal fractures, hematoma, caustic exposures of the esophagus and throat, and post-tonsillectomy eschar can all cause pharyngitis-like symptoms, throat pain. So in summary, what I'm going to remember, things like epiglottitis, bacterial tracheitis, Ludwig's angina, peritonsillar abscess, retropharyngeal abscess. The major bacteria I'm going to remember, strep, Neisseria, mycoplasm, chlamydia, diphtheria, and then the viruses, rhino, adeno, HSV1 and 2, influenza, Epstein-Barr. Love it. All right, number two, what are the indications for steroids in a patient with pharyngitis, Adam? So, of course, we love to fight about our steroids, don't we? This is a complex issue. In the textbook, the current version, it talks about the Cochrane Review in 2012. This concluded that symptoms were improved at 48 hours, but recurrence rates did not change. The study was underpowered for complications, and a lot of people argue that there were not enough children included in the analysis, so you can't really argue whether this applies to children or not. Exclusions from this review were people with infectious mononucleosis, peritonsillar abscesses, and post-tonsillectomy patients because these patient populations typically are treated with steroids. Anyway. Anyway. But the plot thickens, of course. Recently in JAMA, we have over 500 adult patients compared with no antibiotics, the placebo group versus the steroids, fine and similar at 24 hours. They still had symptoms. At 48 hours, the placebo group had more symptoms than your steroid group. Makes sense. Everyone feels better on steroids, right? Totally. Totally. If you have to be sick, it's better to be manic and sick. Right. So we'll drop a link in the show notes for that paper. But again, in summary, when it comes to up to date, they only recommend all steroids in only severe symptoms with an inability to swallow, airway obstruction, infectious mono, peritonsillar abscess, or post-tonsillectomy patients. Yeah, I think you're probably in general okay going either way on this issue. I don't think there's really a definite answer or a standard of care at this point. Speaking purely anecdotally, it felt great getting steroids when I had mono. (laughs) Plus, plus good. Did your symptoms resolve within 48 hours? Oh, less than that. A couple hours. He's a believer. He's a believer. All right, Tristan, question number three. Give me those causes of epiglottitis. Dun, dun, dun. The scary epiglottitis. So we're actually seeing a decreasing incidence of pediatric epiglottitis, probably due to good vaccinations and that kind of stuff. But adult epiglottitis is still a problem, still a thing. We get a couple of cases every year in Victoria, and they're always pretty scary. So what it is, is a localized cellulitis inflammation of the supraglottic structures, the base of the tongue, the vellecula, area epiglottic folds, arytenoid, and of course the epiglottis. Technically the term superglottitis is probably better, but I wouldn't recommend using that on the phone with your consultants because they might be a bit confused. The typical causes for this, H flu, is why we're seeing less of it because everyone's getting vaccinated for H flu, but you can also get it from strep, staph, various viruses, or direct thermal injury. So the classic presentation, adult smoker, who's had a bit of a sore throat for a couple of days, complains of some pain with swallowing, some difficulty swallowing, but he has a pretty 
normal exam until he starts stridering. Alternatively, you know, people can have a prodrome as long as seven days or as short as a couple of hours. It's pretty variable. And you're looking out for things that are progressing rapidly, getting much worse very quickly, or patients that are immunocompromised at baseline. Sometimes hear things like muffled voice, dysphonia, they can have ear pain. They don't necessarily have to have a fever. 50% of them, in fact, won't. And they often will have tenderness if you palpate the anterior and axillary region of the hyoid or manipulate the larynx moving it side to side. Patients that are drooling, that can't handle their own saliva, are kind of imminent and obviously very concerning patients. What about the management? Well, this one's easy. It's an airway problem. Get a good airway plan. So consider preventative intubation early in the course in anyone who has rapidly progressing symptoms. So if you're worried this is going downhill really fast, get on board. This is the kind of time that you don't want to drop your paralytic and get all cowboy. An awake look or set up with topicalized look first and see if you can get a good look at the cords with maybe a rhinoscope or something like that. Double setups in the OR with the anesthesia ENT. These are the kind of things you need to do. Other kind of cherry on top? Yeah, the usual things the you usual. would do for an infection. IV antibiotics. So we're, here we're talking about third generation cephalosporins, ceftriaxone. You can also use cefataxime in the young or ceftra if they have a cephalosporin allergy. And then maybe steroids. They recommend big doses of dex here. And racemic epi, we always try in any airway swelling. And of course, lots of analgesia, humidified oxygen, and you need to have them in a resuscitation area right away. One thing I'll warn that's not in the textbooks, but definitely ENT and anesthesia warns about, be very careful topicalizing epiglottitis with analgesias like lidocaine, because if people can't feel what's going on in the airway anymore, they can't protect it. Yeah, I think these are definitely ones that are kind of ideally dealt with in the OR in a controlled environment. If you are going ahead and intubating one of these patients, just make sure that you also grab a smaller diameter tube as well, just in case you get in there and find that you can't pass the, you know, number 10 ET tube because their epiglottis <laughs> is about the size of a baseball. You can't put the Louisville slugger in there. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Okay, moving on. Deep spaces of the neck. Can you list four? I'm a visual guy, so take a look at figure 75.5 for this one because I've never really fully figured out these spaces until this sagittal view in Rosen's. Thank you, Rosen. But basically, there's five spots that we need to know about. The submandibular space, which is broken up into sublingual and submaxillary spaces. Here, we're talking about Ludwig's angina. The next space is the parapharyngeal space. This contains the carotid artery, the jugular vein, the cervical sympathetic chain, and cranial nerves, 9 to 12. Next up is the retropharyngeal space. That lies in the midline and extends from the base of the skull all the way down to the superior mediastinum. So we're ending at kind of T2 level there. Between here is the danger space. So that's posterior to the retropharyngeal space. And this extends from the base of the skull all the way to the diaphragm. So that's all the way into the chest around the heart. And then last up is the prevertebral space. So that extends from the base of the skull all the way down the coccyx. Easy segue here. Dr. Jones, what are the typical bacteria causes of D-space infections and what are the different syndromes called? Most frequently isolated organisms, things that you're used to, streptococcus, staphylococcus. You can also find bacteroides species in there. Beta-lactamase producing organisms are isolated in two-thirds of cases, so just be aware of that in terms of your resistance patterns. Other organisms that you can find, H. flu, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, Candida, especially in immunosuppressed patients. In terms of different syndromes, so the most common ones that you see and the ones that we talk about and that you know from medical school are like Ludwig's angina, retropharyngeal abscess. You can also have Vincent's angina, which is what, Adam? 
We covered that not too long ago, right? Nasty looking dishwater film uh, from bacteria in the gingiva and soft tissues of the tonsils. Then we got Quincy's syndrome, which is a peritonsillar abscess. So I think those are the main ones. There's other weird and wonderful stuff. You can see Lemire's syndrome sometimes, just septic thrombophlebitis of the internal jugular vein that lies close to some of these spaces. But in general, you know, if you have an infection going on in any of these spaces, that's an emergency. That's something you need to be really worried about, especially from an airway perspective. Which is a good segue into question number six. What are the potential complications of these deep space neck and face infections? Ooh, airway obstruction. Yes. What if I cause a little irritation of the pterygoid or the masseter? Oh, you'd probably have trismus. And does that respond to paralytics? No. no. That sounds like a problem. That is a problem. Lemire's, Tristan already told us about. And Rotted artery aneurysms along the, the same vein. Or artery. Or artery. Cavernous sinus thrombosis. Retropharyngeal abscess. Empyema and pneumonia extending down into the chest. And then some badness. Yeah. So you end up with sepsis, ARDS, necrotizing fasciitis, mediastinitis, perimyocarditis and cardiac abscess, and then osteomyelitis from the mandible all the way down into the chest. Whew. Okay, so let's summarize that a little bit. Up front, you have your airway issues. Airway obstruction, trismus are the main ones. Obviously, you can get some distorted anatomy with the other ones, but those are kind of your principal airway concerns. There's some vascular complications, Lemire syndrome, which is that septic thrombophlebitis, the internal jugular, carotid artery aneurysms, mycotic aneurysms, cavernous sinus thrombosis. Then you have your kind of spreading infection complications. So empyema, pneumonia, sepsis, neck fash, mediastinitis, myocarditis, pericarditis, and osteomyelitis. Ooh, good question. Adam, when do the sinuses typically develop? You should know this now. Age 10. Great. Question eight. Nice. <laughs> what are the pathophysiology of sinusitis and what are the typical pathogens? All right. So a healthy sinus is sterile. There's free air exchange, moves in and out. Mucus can drain freely. When you obstruct the ostia of the sinus, and that can be due to viral, allergic, ciliary paralysis in smokers, any of those causes, that leads to bacterial introduction when you cough, when you blow your nose, and then overgrowth because it can't drain. Other causes we're talking about here, immunocompromised people, septal deviation, nasal polyp, tumors, trauma, rhinitis, medicamentosa, barotrauma from foreign bodies, especially in those little kids that like to pull little pellets up their nose, and then cocaine abuse and NG tubes. Pathogens here, Tristan? All right, so you got your usual strep, staph, pseudomonas, and you can add in some of your community-acquired pneumonia bugs like uh, Moraxella cateralis, pseudomonas, non-typical H flu, and fungal infections. So to summarize, blocked sinus, bacterial overgrowth, and your usual suspects. Question number nine. We're going over the management of acute rhinosinusitis and six predisposing factors for it. Let's start off with the risk factors because that just makes more sense. Tristan, want to give me a little list here? So as usual, your immunocompromised patients are at risk and any structural abnormalities like a septal deviation that can cause obstruction of the sinuses, nasal polyps, tumors, trauma, fractures, uh, anything that, uh, that can impede the drainage and air exchange of your sinus as we covered in the last question. Rhinitis medicamentosa. What is that? Because we went over it quickly in the last question. I'm pretty sure that is a Harry Potter spell. It sounds like it. 
No, so this is rebound rhinitis that results from overuse of decongestants. You can also get rhinitis secondary to toxic exposures of the mucosa. Talked about barotrauma, foreign bodies, nasal cocaine abuse, and any instrumentation of the nose that could have pushed some nasty bugs up there. Yeah, like what we do to people. Nasal gastric tubes, nasal tracheal intubation, those kind of things. Pediatric foley and pull out the foreign body. Whoopow. The goal here in therapy, it's pretty easy. Treat their symptoms. Saline flushes, hypertonic saline, neti pot, whatever they got, get them rinsing. I highly recommend just swirling around in the waters off the south coast of the island in the surf. That'll rinse out anything. Getting washing machines washing through machine. the wake. Local decongestants here. So topical agents are to be used no longer than five days because we increase this risk of that rhinitis. Harry Potterism. <laughs> Medicamentosa. There I'd be a go. terrible wizard apparently. And one big thing, oral decongestants versus topical, there's no difference. And you certainly want to avoid systemic decongestants. So things like pseudoephedrine in poorly controlled hypertension patients or anyone on TCAs, MOAIs, or non-selective beta adrenergic blockers. If they're allergic, what can you do, Tristan? Loratadine, 10 milligrams daily. Perfect. Treat their allergies. And if they're febrile, they're immunocompromised, they're not getting better, you're going to throw a little antibiotics in there. Remember, the pharmacists are going to fight you on this. But the recommendation for sinusitis is high-dose amoxicillin. 90 milligrams per kilogram divided or a gram in adults TID for seven to 10 days. That's still the first line recommendation. For penicillin allergic patients, Septra or a macrolide antibiotic is recommended and potentially a three-day course of Septra is equal to a 10-day course of antibiotics if you add decongestants with it. So that's it for our regular questions. We have a few wisecracks for you. So the first one, we're going to list five separative and five non-separative complications of group A beta hemolytic strep. You better be able to list this on your peds rotations because they like to pip you. So let's talk about separative and non-separative. Did I say that right? Separative? Separative. Separative. You're good. I'm getting better. We're working on you. Separative, tonsil, pharyngeal, cellulitis, or abscess, otitis media, sinusitis, necrotizing fasciitis, yeah. streptococcobacteremia, meningitis or brain abscess, and that's a rare complication resulting from a direct extension of an ear or sinus infection from bacteremic spread. Remember, puffy pots tumor. Remember, puffy pots tumor. That's extension of a sinus infection into the intracranial space. Last but not least, jugular vein, septic, thrombophlebitis, Lemieres. We're doing that again and again today. Okay, non-separative complications. So patients can get acute rheumatic fever, scarlet fever, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, and get acute glomerulonephritis, and PANDAS, which is... Pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with group A streptococci, PANDAS. Some people don't believe exist, other neurologists do. All right, we'll just stay out of that debate. Number two, we're going to list four findings on lateral neck x-ray of deadly epiglottitis. So remember, the true diagnosis is done with eyeball looking at the thing. So laryngoscopy or rhinoscope looking down into the glottic space. But radiographs have a Rosen's reported 90% sensitivity. So you can miss up to 10% of people with this killer diagnosis. That sounds not good. Not so bueno. Findings, Tristan, what are we going to see on the x-ray? All right, so you're going to see obliteration or loss of the vellecula. You see swelling of the retinoids and epiglottic folds. You see edema of the prevertebral and retropharyngeal soft tissues and ballooning of the hypopharynx and the mesopharynx. You can also see an edematous epiglottis, the thumb sign. Remember the rule of eights, greater than eight millimeters, bad. patients having a bad day. Bad. 
And we're, we'll drop a couple photos for you there in the show notes. So to recap, think superglottitis and anyone with severe throat pain, altered voice, dyspnea, and inability to swallow secretions. Yeah, these people don't look so good. Fire an x-ray and get a scope down there to take a look at what's going on. All right, number three, we're going to describe an approach to airway management in deep space neck infections. Isn't the answer to this question, call a friend and get them to the OR? It almost always is. But again, we know there's a variance audience here, so it really depends where you are. But the best thing here is to try to do a double setup. The textbook answer is to have someone ready with a surgical airway and somebody who's doing an awake fiber optic from the top. But I know you can't always do that everywhere. Yeah, so the keys here, get them to the OR if you can. If you can't, make sure you have a double set up and you're ready to cut the neck if things go south. And typically you don't want to do an RSI in these patients. You want to have them awake, protecting their own airway until you have the trachea secured. And then you want to top them up IV antibiotics, IV steroids. For those deep neck cellulitis cases in abscess, they need cold steel. So they got to pop that abscess open. Awesome. We have a couple of links in the show notes for uh, awake intubation. There's the MCRIT article uh, and an article on Canadium put together by our good friends out in Kelowna. Shout out to Dan Ting and Jared Bayless about awake intubation. All right, number four, what are the lateral neck x-ray findings suspicious for retropharyngeal abscess? So here we have a few rules of thumbs, don't we, Tristan? Tell me about that lateral soft knit tissue of the neck. Sure, so this is one that everyone talks about, but we're gonna put some parameters on it. So you're looking at the anterior posterior diameter of the soft tissues along C1 to C4 vertebrae. It should be less than 40% of the AP diameter of the vertebral body just behind it. If it's more than that, you need to be worried that there's some sort of mass, probably an abscess going on back there. What about pathologic retropharyngeal spaces on lateral x-ray. So these are some specific numbers you got to remember. So at C2, if it's more than seven millimeters, and this applies to both children and adults. At the level of C6, at the retrotracheal space, if it's more than 14 millimeters in kids or 22 millimeters in adults, you're thinking about badness there. Some indirect signs, reversal of normal cervical lordosis, air fluid levels in the abscess that you can see, foreign bodies, or vertebral body destruction because they're getting osteomyelitis. Awesome. You need to make sure that they're true lateral films, right? If you have any rotation in there, that's going to make the soft tissues look different, can make them look thicker. Also, the neck should be fully extended, deep inspiration, and you're going to measure these distances from the anterior and inferior aspect of the vertebral bodies. In short though, remember, CT MRI far better than a lateral x-ray of the soft tissues. Awesome. And that wraps it up for Erties. Erties all done. So take a look at episode 23 and then find through this show notes one more time know everything you need perfect so we're gonna see you on monday again for chapter 76 see you guys